And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave Does Podcasts, a Two True Freaks presentation. I am David Weeder, and this is the first installment of my semi-ongoing series, Dave Does Back to the Future. And in a lot of ways, this particular series within the series has probably the longest single gestation period, at least the most, well, tracked gestational period. I'm going to take you back here, and we're going to go back in time. Now we're going to do this in the realm of the imagination. We're not really getting in the DeLorean and heading back. But I'm going to take you back 30 years to the summer of 1986, when I was 8 years old. Now, my mother was working weekends and kind of had to keep me busy. I had a babysitter that would come in and check on me, but wasn't there the whole time. So we needed something to keep me occupied because I was eight years old. I was a Ritalin kid. And the greatest solution of all was to rent a VCR and some movies. Now, some of you probably just cocked an eyebrow, and that's true. Millennials, we used to have to rent the VCRs as well as the videotapes. So kids of the 80s probably remember the excitement when you got the VCR and it came in this awesome briefcase. It looked like it had nuclear launch codes embedded in it. Like you're about to just bomb the hell out of Russia, which of course in the 80s, the Cold War was full on. So, well... Probably not the best allegory, but it was what it was. This particular weekend was special, though, because I rented a movie I had wanted to see for quite some time, and I sat down and I put in the tape and I pushed play, and I watched Godzilla 1985. Now, the best part of Godzilla 1985 was the cartoon short that was in front of it, which was Bambi vs. Godzilla. Luckily, we had a backup plan. I rented more than one movie. I had also rented a little-known indie flick called Back to the Future, and I watched this movie. I fell in love with this movie. I rewatched it and rewatched it again. And I spent the bulk of the weekend watching this movie Back to the Future because I was just freaking obsessed with it. I don't know how many times I watched it over that weekend, probably a good six to eight times. And I don't know how many times I've watched it since then, as well as its sequels. It's probably the biggest component to my fascination, although some would call it an obsession, an unhealthy obsession in some circles, but I call it a fascination with time travel. And then for me watching it in, during that weekend of 1986, 30 years later, here we are with Dave Does Back to the Future, a complete and total examination of all things BTTF. So it had a 30-year gestational period. Now, I didn't know what a podcast was at 8 years old. Yes, the seed started there, but if you really want to get down to it, I'm going to take you back a little bit more recently to December of 2014, standing amongst Universal Studios Orlando. And as I was walking through the morning air along the Simpsons area, I happened to spot it the Back to the Future DeLorean. It was kind of a magical moment. I have a picture of myself with it, which I'll put up at my Tumblr, davelovestacos.tumblr.com. But it kind of inspired the idea of, you know, now I'm a podcaster, I have a venue to talk about these things, and I really started thinking of doing a Back to the Future special. I figured I could throw it on Two True Freaks proper, there's room for it. Podcasters are never short on ideas for other podcasts. As the idea expanded, I started thinking about why just talk about the movies? Why not talk about the animated series? What about the comics? What about the video games? And the more it grew, it went from a special to a trilogy of three-hour specials to 12 parts of extensively long episodes. 
So when I really got creatively stuck and decided to change Dave's Daredevil podcast to Dave Does Podcast, the very first thing on the list was, let's talk about Back to the Future and let's extend it. Let's tear this thing apart, explore every nuance and put it back together. And hopefully by the time we put it back together, it still works the way it did before. Now to start off this journey, since this is the first installment, the first thing I have to do just by storytelling requirements is set up a basic overview of the Back to the Future trilogy, as well as the components of what we are going to be covering over the next who knows how many episodes. I'm going to make it as entertaining as I can. I'm going to do it without pants. No, I'm kidding. Rest assured, I have pants on. So if you are ready to take the journey, let us jump into my wonderful windowless van with that great airbrush painting of Patrick Swayze as a centaur and let us jump back to the future. baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Take that, you mutated son of a bitch! Save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Hey, Dad! George! Hey, you in the fight! But the only power source capable of generating 1.21 gigawatts of electricity is a bolt of lightning. I am an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. Michael, your first starring role, Back to the Future, were you surprised by the impact the film had had? Yeah, I, I, I was surprised. Um, well, I, I expected the film... To do well, and when I say do well, I mean you know make a profit or whatever uh, would satisfy the studios um, because of the people associated with it, Stephen and, and whatnot. But for it to come out and do as well as it did, I mean, I, I mean, I don't even look at the totals anymore. It, it's it's scary. Um, Breathtaking they are. It is. It's frightening. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I don't have to add it up, and, and I'm almost <laughs> as glad I don't have to add it up as I am sorry that I don't get to keep it. You know, when it comes down to it, it, it really is a miracle that Back to the Future came out the way it did. And let's be honest, you probably heard this on DVD commentaries, but it took forever to find the right studio. Some felt it was too risque, others felt it wasn't risque enough in the world of 80s teen comedies. And when it finally did get behind the camera with a $14 million budget, its lead actor, Eric Stoltz, ended up just not being right for the role. So he got the boot, as did the original Jennifer Parker, Melora Hardin, which is the subject of another episode down the road. Basically, the candles were burning on both ends, reshoots were happening, and in the end, there was only a matter of about 9 or 10 weeks from completion of shooting to the movie actually debuting. It was a very rocky, rocky road to putting the movie together, but when the movie was released on July 3rd, 1985, it became the biggest movie of that year. It was number one for something like 11 weeks, with the exception of one week for National Lampoon's European Vacation. This wasn't just any other year. 1985 had some major, major movies. The Goonies came out in 1985. Rambo First Blood Part 2 came out. The Breakfast Club, for Pete's sake. This was not the number one movie of a lackluster box office year by any stretch of the imagination. It was indeed a phenomenon. And the second week of the movie did better than the first week because word of mouth was so 
strong. As we all know, Michael J. Fox came in to replace Eric Stoltz, and of course Fox was the first choice, but... His schedule had to be amended a little bit to make this work. Michael J. Fox at that time was well known in the sitcom realm as Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. Okay, now, we're going to need a business manager to help us avoid paying taxes. <laughs> taxes? A tax is a terrible, hairy, liberal monster. <laughs> With big teeth. <laughs> thing that can stop the terrible tax monster is a Republican. <laughs> Who wants to be a Republican? <laughs> I think one of the best elements of this movie is the fact that Marty McFly is such a far, far cry from what you see as Alex P. Keaton. Alex P. Keaton was very, very conservative, wore sweaters and ties and was all about the money. Marty McFly dressed, well, cool. He was in denim. He played rock and roll. He was all about art. He was all about really expressing himself. This movie was huge for Michael J. Fox. This summer was huge. He also starred in Teen Wolf. For a single weekend, Michael J. Fox was in the number one movie with Back to the Future and the number two movie with Teen Wolf. And of course, also coming from the sitcom world was Christopher Lloyd, who played Jim on Taxi. Now, Taxi had been, I believe, canceled by this point or had gone off the air, what have you, whatever you want to call it. But I've always thought that Doc Brown and his character Jim from Taxi were kind of alternate universe versions of each other. There was even an episode where you saw Jim, who is this spaced out hippie, noticeable pothead, but you see his origin, that he was actually at a Ivy League University, and the first time he tried pot, it all just went to seed, no pun intended. So perhaps Jim is that road not taken for Dr. Brown. A cautionary tale, or maybe something where Doc Brown might have been happier and more brilliant. Who knows, Jim was a mysterious character. Bob Gale kind of came up with the idea, but he workshopped it with Robert Zemeckis, who also ended up directing it. Now, Zemeckis basically was able to get into that position because he had a huge hit with Romancing the Stone, starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. And I just want to point out the same year that Back to the Future came out, the sequel to Romancing the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, also came out. Not directed by Robert Zemeckis. Now, Zemeckis has done pretty well for himself in the directing department. You may know him from such films as Castaway with Tom Hanks. A small, lovely film that nobody ever saw called Forrest Gump, also with Tom Hanks. And of course, who can forget Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Steven Spielberg produced Back to the Future. And we would all be lying to ourselves if we didn't think that Back to the Future's initial success was from having Spielberg's name right there on the poster. And Back to the Future had a fantastic premise. Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a peeping tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Now, 
he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's a word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. It opens in Hill Valley, California, in 1985, where a teenager, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, accidentally uses his friend and mentor, Doc Brown's time machine, which is indeed a DeLorean, which is fantastic, one of the best reveals in movies, but he uses this DeLorean time machine to go back to 1955, totally accidentally, and he doesn't waste time screwing up the time frame because the first thing he does is cause his parents to not meet. The Florence Nightingale effect that came from their first meeting was super proceeded because now Marty is the target of that Florence Nightingale effect. So not only does that jeopardize their future relationship, it jeopardizes Marty's own existence as he slowly begins to fade out of the time frame. So Marty must basically get the help of the 1955 Doc Brown to get back to his own time. Along the way, he has to play matchmaker for his own parents to make sure he's even born. And of course, he succeeds in getting them together. There's a great climax, probably one of the single best climaxes of any movie ever and marty goes back to 1985 where he re-meets doc brown and all is well until we get an epilogue in which doc brown returns and tells marty we've got to go back to the future it's your kids marty it's your kids it's your kids marty something's got to be done about your kids and the movie ends with what was intended to be a joke with the delorean flying at the viewer because where we're going we don't need roads now again the epilogue there of doc showing up was meant to be nothing more than a joke this was meant to be a one-off, just a film, just an entertaining movie for the masses. Not a phenomenon, but hey, nice side effect, right? If there's one thing movie studios love, it's money-generating franchises. And certainly when you're the biggest movie of a calendar year, you're going to end up with a sequel. And this was going to happen with or without Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. So they signed on, and they got most of the band back together, Crispin Glover being a holdout. Apparently Glover had a big problem with the ending of the first movie being sort of a material reward and I kind of see what he's saying but he rubbed Bob Gale the wrong way he rubbed the producers the wrong way and then he was doing some crazy demands as an actor Crispin Glover was not at the point where he could make such demands so he was replaced anyway the point is, the bulk of the band got back together for what was intended to be a single sequel. Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis went to work on this script that got bigger and bigger and bigger. It was supposed to be called Paradox, and it got to the point where it kind of had to be split into two movies, which, hey, Universal was completely happy with. What they ended up getting was two movies, not quite for the price of one, but probably well discounted since Back to the Future Part 2 and Back to the Future Part 3 basically did a Lord of the Rings before Lord of the Rings and filmed consecutively. And because of work on the sequel, or just as another joke, the to-be-continued tag that we probably all remember seeing in the theater was added to the VHS release, which means I saw it in my first viewing on VHS, but somebody who saw the original outing in the theater did not, despite what your memory tells you. Either way, that end tag, the to-be-continued end tag, went from a joke to a prophecy, as Back to the Future Part 2 made its way to theaters on November 22, 1989. And I can tell you that opening day, I was right there at school. 
I didn't get to go see this in the theater until late December, but I did see it in the theater. Now, Back to the Future Part 2 was big, and it actually felt big as it was coming out. There were a lot of promotional tie-ins with Pizza Hut, for example, in which they sold shades that you would see in 2015. You saw a hoverboard skateboard. You saw merchandising, which you didn't really see with Back to the Future. The first one just kind of seemed to come out of nowhere, and it wasn't really aimed at any specific audience. With Back to the Future Part 2, Universal knew it had a good commodity and presented it as such. Now, according to BoxOfficeMojo.com, Back to the Future Part 2 was the sixth highest grossing movie of 1989, which I know what you're thinking. It goes from the first highest grossing of 1985, four years later it's the sixth. However, let me point out something logical. First of all, it was released November 22nd of 1989. It had all of a month and some change to make that accumulative gross. So that is in no way, shape, or form a small feat at all. That is a huge, huge hit. Secondly, to put this in context, 1989, for those that don't remember, was the year of this phenomenon called Batman. Tim Burton's first Batman movie, of course starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, was everywhere and everything. It was so merchandised out, you could be eating Batman cereal while listening to Prince's Batman soundtrack, wearing a Batman t-shirt, Batman sweatpants, Batman socks, a Batman cap, Batman sunglasses, and the cereal's inside of a Batman bowl while you're looking at your Batman souvenir magazine. It was huge. It was everywhere, and again, it was everything. So the year was already steep, not to mention you had things like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, and the surprise hit of the year, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So the fact that a movie comes in right at the end of the year and not only hits the top 10, but just shy of the top 5, that's a big, big hit. Now, Back to the Future Part 2 picks up with the cliffhanger of Part 1, which takes us to 2015, a place with hovering cars, hoverboards, the Cafe 80s, Jaws 19 with a holographic shark that still looks fake, and of course the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series against a team in Florida by a landslide, a complete sweep of the World Series. And of course, Doc and Marty manage to stop Marty's son from doing something stupid and being bullied by Biff Tannen's grandson, Griff Tannen. But in the process, they catch the attention of the elderly Biff, who decides to take Marty's idea of winning some sports bets thanks to a sports almanac and does it next level by taking it back to his younger self in 1955. This results in Doc and Marty returning to an alternate 1985 in which Biff has come into power thanks to his riches. Hill Valley is full of casinos, it's a war zone, George McFly is dead, Lorraine McFly is married to Biff, and Doc, well, that's another story. So, Doc and Marty head back to 1955. They manage to go around the events of the first movie to get the almanac back from Biff, and just as they're celebrating their victory, Doc and the DeLorean are struck by lightning. But fret not, we learn that Doc has actually been transported back to 1885, which kind of brings us to the cliffhanger of the second movie in which 1985 Marty goes to find 1955 Doc to help him get back to the future. Do you remember the future? You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Are we back? We're back. October 21st, 2015. Marty, we're going to be able to see our wedding. Wow. The future. 
I gotta check this out, Doc. Look what happened oh. to your son. <laughs> He's a complete wimp. Don't talk to anyone. You've been looking. Don't touch anything. I need to borrow your hoverboard. And try not to look at anything. I didn't invent the time machine to win at gambling. I can't lose. I invented a time machine to travel through time. Hey, Doc, I'm all for that. What's wrong with making a few bucks on the side? Now, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating an alternate 1985. There have been a few changes. It's like we're in hell or something. No, it's Hill Valley, although I can't imagine hell being much worse. But they'll all be back. Eat less, slackers! Biff? Hello? Hello, anybody home? Why they can't be you? You're so big. Michael J. Fox. Christopher Lloyd. Michael J. Fox. More like a couple of teenagers, you know? And Michael J. Fox. Mom, is that you? Steven Spielberg presents a Robert Zemeckis film, Back to the Future, Part 2, coming November 22nd to theaters everywhere. As mentioned, I did go see Back to the Future 2 in the theater, which I think a theatrical experience is a very important experience. It's very, very different from putting in the VHS or the DVD and sitting in your living room. Especially in the 80s and 90s, before cell phones, going to a theater and watching a movie was uh, an immersive experience. I mean, yes, you would have the occasional talker in the group, but most of the time, people were happy to sit down, stare at the screen, and just be taken away by the movie. And that makes a big difference in the experience. Especially for me, with Back to the Future 2, I was able to immerse myself, and, you know, I knew... The situation, I knew Back to the Future 2 was made with Back to the Future 3 also right in tow. But to be honest with you, that theatrical experience was great right up to the cliffhanger. Because then you get this preview for Back to the Future 3 built into the movie. And it just kind of felt a little bit condescending. Like, I gave you my money, I gave you my allowance to watch this movie, and you're going to make sure I go see another movie. But now that I look back on it, as frustrated as I was at 12 years old, I was already going to go see Back to the Future Part 3. And of course I did when it hit the theater, not on opening day, but I did see it in the theater. Back to the Future Part 3 came out on May 25th, 1990, and it did respectably, but it was definitely the lowest grossing of the trilogy. So you started seeing some diminishing returns as you got to the third movie. Now luckily, the way the movies were made simultaneously meant that there was still a profit to be made either way. But I wonder if people were upset like me that there was a very blatant cliffhanger at the end of the second movie, followed by a trailer, or if some of the novelty had worn off by the time we saw the second one. After all, there were four years between Back to the Future and Back to the Future Part 2 with some anticipation building, and only six months between Back to the Future Part 2 and Back to the Future Part 3, with most of Part 3's plot being spelled out for us at the end of the second movie. From out of the West, in a cloud of dust, a thunder of hooves, and a mighty... Great Scott! I know, this is heavy. And This summer, Marty and Doc go back one more time for their greatest adventure of all... Doc's living in the past. Don't try it, Tanner! But he's about to be history. What kind of a future do you call that? I'm going back to 1885 and I'm bringing you home. It's the last roundup. Come on, run! 
It's the final showdown. Hey, lighten up, jerk. Where Marty makes a name for himself. What's your name, dude? Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. What kind of stupid name is that? Doc meets his mate. This saved my life. I'm a proud of your service. And Tannen meets his match. I'll hunt you and shoot you down like a duck. It's dog, Buford. Shoot him down like a dog. Michael J. Fox. Where'd you learn to shoot like that? 7-Eleven. Christopher Lloyd. There's a fella that can't hold his liquor. And Mary Steenburgen. I never ever met a man like you before. <clears throat> Gentlemen, excuse me, but my friend and I have to catch a train. This summer, Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis invite you... Come on, Marty! ...to the Rough Rider, Rip Roar, Rootin' Tootin', Straight Shootin'. It's just a hold-up! It's a science experiment! Rousing conclusion of... Back to the Future. To the future part three basically the third movie takes us back to 1885 hill valley where marty goes to stop doc from getting killed from biff tannen's ancestor mad dog tannen the two have to work to get back to 1985 without the aid of technology Along the way, the two save a teacher named Clara Clayton, Doc falls in love with her, and they end up using a train to get home, but Doc is left behind. Luckily, works out for him well. As soon as Marty gets back home, the DeLorean is destroyed by another train, but Doc arrives at the tail end to let Marty know he's okay, he's married Clara, they have kids, Jules and Vern, and a flying, time-traveling train. And the trilogy wraps with Doc letting us know the future isn't written. So make the future a good one. And we see the big, bold words at the end simply telling us it is the end. And in reality, it is the end of the road. See, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale own enough of a controlling stake in Back to the Future that they've sworn there will not be a Back to the Future sequel or remake as long as they're alive. Which I think is incredibly good because it doesn't dilute the product. However... In a lot of ways, it's not the end, because there's so much more that has come since then, and more to come ahead of us. If it's not a Back to the Future movie, we're going to get more Back to the Future. In the summer of 1990, less than a month after Back to the Future 3 hit theaters, Universal Studios Orlando opened, the sister site to Universal Studios Hollywood. Universal Studios Hollywood worked on a pretty simple premise. You went on a quote-unquote tour in which you met Jaws, you met King Kong, you saw an earthquake, you saw all these great things. And just as a side, at one time you could actually see the Lion Estates stone arches along the way. I don't know if those are still there. Universal Orlando was different. It took those same components and made them individual theme park rides. However, the rides, they were DOA. Kong was broken, Earthquake didn't work, and Jaws, well, Jaws was a complete and total disaster. Jaws was a great idea on paper, but never really worked. Eventually, the kinks got worked out with King Kong and Earthquake. Jaws got a complete reboot, by the way. So the Jaws ride that closed in order to make way for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter was not the Jaws ride that you would have ridden in 1990. That was a terrible, terrible beginning. However, if you speed ahead almost a year to May 2nd, 1991, something came along to change that theme park's fortunes, which is why the park is still here. And appropriately, it's why I could stand in front of a DeLorean and get inspired to do a podcast about Back to the Future. I'm not being very subtle here. It was Back to the Future, the ride. Into the car! Activate time circuits! We're going back! To the future! 
And simply put, it was one of the most innovative rides to ever hit the theme park world, something we're still feeling the innovation from today. Now, I'm going to go into more detail on the Back to the Future ride, just like I'm going to go into more details in the movies. But the ride was a simulator. It was just a next-level, mind-blowing simulator, totally immersive. The design was genius. It had a very engaging cue that brought you into the story. And you also had actors Christopher Lloyd reprising his role as Doc Brown and Thomas F. Wilson reprising his role as Biff Tannen. It revitalized Universal Orlando. Back to the Future was what drew people to the park for the several lean years you saw there at the beginning. The ride was so influential that even though the last movie bowed out in 1990, the ride was at both Universal Studios Hollywood and Universal Studios Orlando until 2007. It was even exported to Universal Studios Japan, where it resided up until May of this year. That's right, May of 2016 saw the last Back to the Future ride get retired. So even after the final movie left theaters... Things were still happening for Back to the Future. In fact, that wasn't even the last thing that happened in 1991 concerning Back to the Future. No, no, that same year, if you were watching CBS, there were cartoons on Saturdays then, and one such cartoon would be Back to the Future, the animated series, which made its debut on September 14th, 1991, and went on to run for two seasons, and kept this guy coming back for cartoons every Saturday, because it was paired up with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. And of course, there's that fascination... Some would call it a complete obsession, but I call it fascination with time travel. The cartoon saw Dan Castellenta taking over the role of Doc Brown, doing the voice. Dan Castellenta, of course, is the voice of Homer Simpson. Christopher Lloyd would appear in live-action science-y segments, along with Bill Nye the Science Guy. Look, I'm going to be honest with you, the animated series, it's, it's cute. You have an anthropomorphic Einstein. You have casual time travel versus some of the paradox fears that Doc holds in the movies. And the DeLorean and Train do goofy-goofy things. It is definitely aimed at children. It is a Saturday morning cartoon, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just put it in the right context. And along the way, this also spawned some Happy Meal toys based on the cartoon, which I happily have on my Back to the Future shelf. And Harvey Comics did a pair of miniseries and a special based on Back to the Future. So you actually had some comic adaptations, which I found out in prep for this show, those Harvey Comics based on the animated series are worth a ton of money. So you might check your long boxes or short boxes to see if you do have those, because you could probably get a pretty good return if you wanted to sell them. However, if you were of such a generous nature that you loved Back to the Future, you might send them to me, lowly podcaster talking about Back to the Future, in which you would get my public thanks and my everlasting loyalty. But if not, I understand. I'll just be here making entertaining podcasts about Back to the Future for you. It's a fun idea, it's entertaining, and we will be talking about it, but it's not to be taken into the mainstream canon. Now, speaking of video games, I'm glad that got brought up because there were several. And many of the early video games for your consoles were made by a company called LJN. Such as the game that pretty much ruined Christmas for 1989 for this guy, which is simply titled Back to the Future. If you ever decide to explore NES or retro gaming, 
and you see the term LJN, you know it's going to be shit. LJN were responsible for some of the absolute worst games I've ever played. When LJN got their hands on Back to the Future and released Back to the Future in 1989, I was excited because it was a Back to the Future video game. How cool would that be? Spoiler, there's no excuse for just how bad Back to the Future the video game is. Prepare, because down the road we will do a full episode on Back to the Future video games. And that game will come up, and I will probably, probably end up breaking something in the midst of talking about that game. Because that game broke my heart and ruined a whole Christmas. I kid you not. Anyway, that's a story for another time. I'm getting off on a tangent. The reason I mention video games is there is one that stands out from the pack. It's from Telltale Games, and it is Back to the Future the Game, appropriately titled. It was released in 2011 in five-part installments, basically episodes. It was an ongoing story. And you know what? This feels like a Back to the Future sequel would feel. The animation's a little weird, the point-and-click's a little awkward, you get used to it, but thanks to the involvement of Bob Gale, you have a feeling of authenticity. The characters are so well done in this, and I'm so glad I got a chance to play it, and I'm going to be talking about this one at length. Because this one actually does serve as a sequel, of sorts. It's set in 1986, with Doc stuff being sold. He hasn't come back since the end of the third movie. And out of nowhere, the DeLorean arrives, because it has an automatic recall function should Doc get into trouble. And it arrives to find Marty. So Marty has to go back to 1931 and rescue Doc once again in the Hill Valley Jail. And he does so with the help of Doc's younger self, but with all of this, it starts screwing with the timeline, including messing up Doc's destiny, messing with Marty's own grandfather, and we end up with Citizen Brown, a sort of mirror-mirror version of Doc Brown, married to Edna Strickland, Principal Strickland's sister. So, of course, the main part of the game is you trying to make the timeline right. And the gameplay, once you get used to it, is extremely solid and very immersive and very engaging. But this was, for the first time, a worthy video game of Back to the Future, and actually a worthy sequel in and of itself. And the best element of Back to the Future the game is that it came out in 2011. It's a franchise that has captured people's imaginations just like it captured mine at 8 years old. So if it can catch a riddling kid at 8 years old, well, who knows what it can do for the rest of the world. And of course, that wasn't the end of the story. I'm going to take you to October 21st, 2015, which of course is the date Marty and Doc go to in Back to the Future Part 2. I'm going to place you where I was on that date. I mean, July was 30 years since the release of Back to the Future. But October 21st was Back to the Future Day, which was global. The entire movie trilogy got a new release on Blu-ray... And I got to go see the movie on the big screen. Now, they were playing the full trilogy, but I'd experienced Back to the Future 2 and 3 in the theater. I had never gotten to see the first movie on the big screen. So there was a great feeling of full circle on this date. Now, there's going to be more on that in just a moment. Another element is IDW, a comic book company, released Back to the Future number 1 on October 21st, 2015. And I got to buy it. It was released on Back to the Future Day. I downloaded it. I read it in preparation for the movie. And I fell in love with this comic book series. The comic book series was intended to be a four-issue miniseries. It was not an adaptation or a continuation, not at the beginning at least. In fact, issue number one showed how Marty and Doc Brown met, which was a big piece of the puzzle. Basically, this series was set up to fill in gaps, to answer questions, to just kind of play around with the mythology. And this started out as a four-issue miniseries that got extended to five issues due to the success of the series. 
and ended up becoming an ongoing. So with issues one through five, you had stories set in and around the original trilogy or before, what have you. Issues number six through 11 formed a story called Continuum Conundrum, which was an actual continuation, a sequel of sorts. And it ended up being fantastic. We're going to be talking quite a bit about the IDW comic. It's something that does have credence since Bob Gale is once again involved with it. And yet there I was, reading Back to the Future, seeing Back to the Future on the big screen on October 21st of 2015, which is one of the greatest moments of my life, because I had this huge, huge epiphany. It was kind of the next big step in making this podcast happen. Because October 21st, 2015 was so clearly painted in my head in 1989 when I saw it on the big screen. This is what the far-flung future is going to look like. We're going to have these flying cars and these hoverboards. And damn, don't I wish we had the hoverboards. And after the movie, I met my wife at this little patisserie, and we sat in the courtyard, and we were kind of chatting a little, and I had that epiphany that suddenly this is the day that I pictured. Not how I pictured it, of course, but this is the day that I saw on the screen, and this is the life I have that I tried to conjecture when I was 12 years old. And for the first time, I realized I had certain perspectives. Now, of course, one of the key elements of Back to the Future is the 30-year time frame. 1955 is 30 years before 1985. 2015 is 30 years after 1985. And, of course, I could pinpoint where I was 30 years ago. I could pinpoint where that movie was released. And it was kind of a mind-blower. To give you a little bit more perspective here... This past summer, as I started to sit down and and start on this show, I realized this is 30 years since I saw Back to the Future on that VHS on the rented Missile Command VHS player. And on one hand, I realized how terrifying it is to have a perspective of 30 years, because now that puts me more as George McFly rather than Marty McFly. But it also gave me an interesting perspective with the fact that 26 years since the last movie in the series was released. Rather than, you know, 31 years since the first movie. But either way, that much time has passed and I still love these movies. The movie still has strong fans. Loot Crate is still sending out Back to the Future merchandise in 2016. I mean, a lot of solid quality movies have come and gone since 1985. Well-made movies, well-directed, well-acted, well-written, and yet Back to the Future remains this touchstone, not only for sci-fi fans, but for fans of good movies overall. There are classes that teach Back to the Future as the perfect script. And here we are 26 years later, and I'm sitting at a microphone talking about Back to the Future. You're listening to this. And that kind of forms the central question is, what is it about Back to the Future that has made it last this long? It's not an ongoing thing like uh, Star Trek or Star Wars. This is a dormant franchise, officially, in terms of films. And yet, there I was in 2014, standing in front of the DeLorean, awestruck at just how amazingly weird it is to be standing that close to a Mr. Fusion. And realistically, that's going to be the biggest question I'm going to be exploring as we go forward. What is it about Back to the Future? Is it the characters? Because they're great characters, they're likable characters, except for Biff. Is it the actors? Because Michael J. Fox is just inherently likable. Christopher Lloyd, I can't imagine anybody else playing Doc Brown. In fact, when there was a photo opportunity with a actor pretending to be Doc Brown at Universal Studios Florida, I balked, and without thinking, I said, that's not the real Doc Brown. Of course, duh, no, it's not going to be, but there it was. Does the secret lie in the sort of ambiguous genre of Back to the Future? I mean, it's part comedy, part adventure, part sci-fi. 
I mean, trying to find the source of what makes Back to the Future one of the most resilient franchises in the world is a very tall task, and I'm going to be honest with you, part of me hopes I don't find something concrete. Ultimately, I'm going to enjoy looking at all these aspects of Back to the Future, but I hope there is some sort of magic in that film. Something unquantifiable that just makes people like myself and you love this movie for nearly three decades and change. And so, from Back to the Future Day, from... December of 2014, standing in front of the DeLorean all the way back to summer of 1986 and seeing Back to the Future for the first time. This podcast has had a really interesting 30 years, at least interesting for me, to come to this point to sit down at this microphone and be able to start this journey talking about one of my favorite franchises. Some of the topics we're going to be looking into, actually, will be things like the music of 1985. What was the world like that Marty McFly inhabited. In fact, we're going to be putting Marty McFly up against the Brat Pack in a future episode. We're also going to be talking about other time travel fiction, such as H.G. Wells' Time Machine, or even It's a Wonderful Life. And of course, I'm always going to be sharing some additional material at davelovestacos.tumblr.com, where you can also submit feedback or ask questions or what have you. But ultimately, we've done kind of the overview. We've seen the main material we're going to be tearing apart. The three movies, the animated series, we'll be talking about Back to the Future of the Ride, and the IDW comic, as well as Back to the Future of the Game, and of course, many, many other things along the way, but those are going to be our main pedestals. Now, the next installment is coming on November 5th of 2016. In it, we're going to be taking a very, very close look at the first act of Back to the Future, the original movie. We're going to be focusing very heavily on the first five minutes of the movie, some of the single best on-screen storytelling you will ever find in movie history. And we're going to be looking at the alternate openings, the openings that could have been via the original novelization and an early draft of the screenplay. And beyond that, who knows, because I don't have a solid roadmap. Of course, I have tons of ideas for episodes, but no solid roadmap as far as when or what is going to be covered in which order, because where this podcast is going, we don't need roads. Sorry I had to. Thank you all for joining me. I am David Weeder. I will talk to you next time. Dave Does Podcasts is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or concepts discussed. All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended, as this show most certainly does not draw revenue. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.